0: Well, welcome, folks, on this uh, absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous Central Kenai Peninsula day. Uh, About time, isn't it, folks? Uh, Welcome to a special edition of Growing a Greener Kenai. And I want to welcome, a hearty welcome, to Casey Matney uh, of the UAF Extension Center. And uh, Casey, welcome to uh, Growing a Greener Kenai. Thanks for coming down. Well, thank you for having me, Larry. Oh, great, great. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a lot of fun. And folks, we got some we've got some pretty good gifts to give away uh, in this next hour. Now there will be a raffle, and uh, I'll get to those in a second. But one of the things Casey and I want to talk about a little bit, and trust me, folks, boy, if there's ever been an expert in the studio, he's sitting right here. You know, I'm a I'm a gardener, but I'm not a botanist, and. Uh, Boy, Casey can whip off Latin names of bugs, and, you know, and me, I'm like, well, I just, I just like growing cauliflower, you know, for me, that's, that's what it is. So, well, Casey, how's your garden going? Have you started anything yet? So, uh, you know,
1: typically this time of year, uh, the snow had been melted for a little while already, and I could work the soil, but the, actually it's like eight days ago is when the snow finally dissipated, and it's finally going through the soil and I probably have another week before I can actually do any work out there before. Cause you don't want to work the soil too early when it's wet, because you can actually squash the little pockets and air, air channels that are in there for all of your plants to get nice oxygen and water later on the season. So I like to wait a little bit longer and then when it's warmed up, then I can put them in there. So, but yeah, typically. You could start direct seeding almost by now for some of your things like beets and radishes and stuff. Maybe some carrots and yep, absolutely. Yeah, those will work. And then uh, of course wait till about around June, a Memorial Day weekend to sure. do your no, norm Under a
0: normal season, yeah. uh, here uh, usually by May fifteenth, I'm putting out all my brassicas. You know my cabbage and cauliflower and broccoli, and then I use milk jugs with the bottom cut out and i will put them in their own little individual mini greenhouse and they usually make it just fine but not this year i'm it's just too it's too early my uh, i stuck my soil thermometer in my raised bed this morning and it just barely hit 50 degrees and uh, even looking at some of the other gardeners on the on the gardening club website uh, they are just now getting 60 degrees even in their greenhouses and high tunnels. so that's that's still a little bit low, but it's, it's about ready to go, especially in my greenhouse. I'm going to start putting stuff in that pretty soon. And uh, I keep, uh, I keep uh, a fan going in there on my starts. And, and what I do, I've told our listeners before, Casey, is I, I start thing. I don't really have a good place in my house, so I start things in my greenhouse, in a mini greenhouse that I built out of a, you know a big box store shelf, and I covered it in plastic, and I got the front where it rolls up and down. And I put a small heater in the bottom. And then I keep a remote thermometer in it, and that lets me know, I mean, it can be five degrees outside or zero, and my little mini greenhouse will still be up at 70, 75 or so. And that works real well for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I usually do my plant starts inside um, on top of my uh, kitchen cabinets, the upper cabinets. There's a space above on top. There in a lot of places. And then I put my uh, lights on on the ceiling, hang them down, and then I have all my plants all across all of the top of the cabinets in the kitchen. It makes it really nice looking because you have light in there. You know, it makes the kitchen bright, but then you also have the greens that are in there. Uh, the hard hardest part is just keeping the cats from trying to jump up there and and eat
0: everything. So yeah, we uh, I used to grow some things on top of our refrigerator in Eagle River, and uh, one day we we found the cat up there and everything was eaten down to the nub so no more no yeah. more of that and it's amazing you wouldn't think they could get up there but good lord they can jump yeah they, they got up there well folks one of the things we're doing uh, you know we we certainly appreciate you listening to to KDLL and especially growing a greener canine i want to thank Casey again for being with us but if you'd like to donate, you can give a call at uh, 513-1996 or 283-8433. And don't forget that 907 in the front. We've got to do that. And I know the people in Hawaii have to do that, too, actually. They've got to, to, to dial their ear. I don't think anywhere else in the country has to. But anyway, what we're, what we're doing this year uh, is we've got, some, we've got a couple pretty good things. Uh, for instance, uh, over this next hour, for anyone that donates $250 or more... You will be entered into a raffle to re, to to uh, receive thirty cubic feet of Fritz Miller from TNT Compost, his super sack of compost. Now, if any of you folks have bought from Fritz Miller before, oh my goodness, he has got he he's got wonderful stuff. He makes it out of he gets horse manure and he turns it almost every day. And it smokes through the winter. I mean, he's got great stuff. I've grown in it before. So $250 above at the end of this hour show, we will have a drawing for the folks of you that donate at least that much or more for a a 30-cubic-foot super sack of Fritz Miller's compost. And then for any of you folks that donate $75 or more, uh, we have three $50 gift certificates to Kenai Feed, at the end of this hour, you will be entered into a raffle to get three fifty-dollar cash gift certificates from Kenai Feed, and then we've also got a few other items will be given away next hour also. And for anyone this hour that donates fifty dollars or above, uh, if you go over that seventy-five-dollar mark, you'll be uh, you'll be in for. The gift certificates. If you do fifty dollars, we've got three family free family memberships to the Central Peninsula Garden Club, and that's a thirty dollar value. Uh, the The season starts on September first. We'll be, get back to our monthly meetings. So those are the prizes we have now. So five one three one nine nine six two eight three eight four three three with that nine zero seven in the front. Two fifty and above for Fritz Miller compost. Seventy five and above for a fifty dollar Kenai feed gift certificate or fifty dollars for three family memberships to central peninsula garden club so we appreciate you listening and we'd really uh, we really want to support kdll and uh, because that's what we get to do with uh, growing a greener kenai you know and that's uh, that's what makes it fun so well casey uh, based on based on your experience this time of year what do you figure are there any pests that our gardeners should look for now, like when they're planting, that may be in the ground that spent the winter there.
1: Sure. So if you've been growing brassicas and that's any of our cauliflower, our broccoli, uh, our mustards, bok choy, things like that. If you think you had root maggots last year, one of the things you can look for this year when you're out planting is little tiny capsules. Basically, it's the little cocoon that the, that the fly is in. They're just red colored. They're kind of a reddish orange, and they're small, about an eighth of an inch across and about a quarter inch long. And if you see those in your soil, those are what's going to be emerging as the adults this spring. And so if you see them there, one of the things we we recommend is the crop rotation, so to plant a different type of plant in there that's not going to be affected by root maggots. So if you see those in your soil, definitely don't plant your brassicas in there because there's already adults going to emerge and come up there. So if I thought I could plant something in there and just cover it with row cover to keep the flies from coming in from the outside, that's not gonna work because they're gonna be coming up in the soil right below the plants already. So that's a be a good spot to go back in and plant potatoes or your carrots or beets or something else in a different plant family. That's why we, we recommend the crop rotation. And ideally go up to four or five, six years, keep going with never going back to the same type of plant And by the time that happens, if there was pests in there, by the time you come back to broccoli again, they're probably not gonna be there, any of the pests that were gonna be affecting those plants. So what's one of the things to look for? If you're also out there and you're digging through the soil and you have potatoes or carrots in there, and you see these little guys that are about an inch long or three quarters of an inch long, uh, they look like a really strong yellowish colored inchworm or something like that, uh, you wanna watch out for those too. what we have is um, a little uh, wire worm in there. And what it can do is uh, burrow into your crops, like your potatoes and any of your other root crops. And so you'll want to move it to something that grows the tops in that instance. So put in some greens, put in, you know, again, like a broccoli or something like that, just so it's not going to be uh, a pest on the plants you're putting back in there. And you see that a lot too, because they're naturally in our grass. our our grass and turf area. So if you're planting into a turf area, uh, try not to do a root crop right away because they're naturally occurring. That's actually the, the young larva, uh, of a beetle that does that damage. So
0: now I know in other parts of the world and I'm not sure about up here in lower 48, do we have troubles with the carrot fly?
1: So, uh, for us, if we're growing our plants outside and things like that, we don't see a lot of pests on your carrots have you seen many pests? no on your no carrots? not really yeah so w- for the most part our carrots are pretty much pest free for the most part the wireworm is one of the the main ones and so uh, that would be pretty much the thing i would look for with our carrots up okay. here um and then also too is uh you know spacing your carrots so like you can plant your carrots really close together at first and if you want baby carrots to start your season like you don't want to have to wait the full length to have a you know large carrot pull those from in between. So your carrots end up being about three inches or so apart. So you get nice big carrots The and the further your carrots are apart, you know, up to about six inches away, that would be the maximum distance. You'd ever want to have to make them, but you'll get really big carrots. So,
0: and you know, Casey, one of the things I did a number of years back that I've been really intrigued with, and they really do this in great Britain is growing super long carrots, you know, like four footers. You know, that they have in competition. So I had, I was growing some stump carrots and I did like, I followed some guys in Great Britain and I had a box, you know, about a two by two box and I filled it full of sand and then you core out, out of that sand and you put your compost in there and then you plant your carrot seeds in those and all they do is they go down in that compost. Well, I was babysitting those all summer long and i mean there were huge shoulders on these carrots and i thought oh man this is great this is great i'm gonna have nice big old long fat candle carrots i planted the wrong variety and they were all about four inches long but they were really fat yeah Yeah. and my wife was in the garden with me and let me tell you The laughter didn't stop for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I, I don't know about you, but I love to grow things underground just because of the surprise that you just, it's just so cool when you're pulling out a carrot or a parsnip or anything like that, that, oh man, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming and it's, it's just more fun and it's fun to watch, to watch the kids harvest that stuff. And I'm sure your kids probably take part in gardening quite a bit at your house.
1: Yep, they do. Um they tend to like to do a little bit of the planting a little bit of the seeding and things like that then they get bored uh they don't like to do any of the row prep or you know having to clean it up and things like that and raking to rows but they love harvesting so yeah that's that's the one time that i can fully engage them for as long as i want they'll pull the potatoes all out they'll go out and get carrots whatever that's the best time for them so so yeah, I'm the one doing the major work, like the weeding and the watering.
0: Nobody wants to do that. So. No, nobody does. That's that's always tough. That's always tough. Back in the Midwest, you get all pumped up, and you're gardening, and you're out there working. And I don't know of anybody that back there that gardened in a greenhouse or any everything. You just planted in the ground, everything grew, and you're all enthused and you're doing. It. And then the next thing you know, oh man, it's too hot to go out in the garden, and it's oh, and then pretty soon you're. You got weeds around, and then if you let them go too much, you're just, it's almost, uh, you'll still get some crops, but it's not quite as good as you as you might. I know one year when I was a kid, uh, I had a little garden, I you mean, know, like fourth grade, and I planted some cantaloupe, and the weeds grew up the same way a kid got bored with it. It's some of the best cantaloupe that, to this day that I can remember growing. They got huge under the weeds. I don't know if the weeds shaded them or helped them or what, but they were fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. So anyway, uh, well, uh, what, folks, one of the things I want to remind you of that, uh, that you know, that, that Casey does too, and uh, he's done it already this year, but watch out for next year. Casey usually does a Gardening 101 class at the public library, that's sold out in the library. My wife and I went to it this year, and it was absolutely fantastic, absolutely fantastic class. So, so uh, watch for that next year, and that was, uh, that was in March that he did that. And he'll be doing it again next year. But, uh, Casey, uh, uh, on your experience too, what, uh, what do you think a new gardener, what do you think their first step would be to get going and start learning? Uh, just to, even if they just want to set up a four by four box, you know, just, okay. just whatever.
1: Well, um, there's lots of things to do at first. Uh, the first thing that you'd have to think about is where you're going to have your plants. So, uh, if you know you're going to have them like in a backyard or something like that, make sure that you have the ability to protect them. Uh, and that's mostly from moose. Uh, but, you know, neighbors' dogs and cats might be a thing too. But make sure you have a way to protect it. So if you want to have a big garden or a small garden, make sure you've got some kind of barrier there to keep the moose out. That's, that's the number one. Because worst thing in the world is get two-thirds through the growing season and then, you know, plants start, you know you know, becoming old out in the woods, you know, and the moose are starting to wander back into the lawn to eat some green grass and check out your trees, and then all of a sudden everything in your garden's gone and overnight, so uh,
0: and you know what those what those goofy things do too, if you've got a row of of cabbage, yeah. they won't just eat a cabbage, they'll take a bite out of the middle of everyone down the line when it wouldn't be so bad they just eat yeah. one cabbage
1: <laughs> yeah you't know, and they'll and yeah, that's what they'll do, and so like if, yeah. One of the first things when they got, they pushed over a eight foot fence. I had the bent over the metal T post. And the first thing I did is they clipped off all of the broccoli because you don't have to bend over for it, right? It's right. all raised up everything. Everything that was tall, was ready to be harvested. They ate that first. So first thing is to protect it. The next thing you want to do is make sure that you've done some soil prep. So if you're using the native soil, you're going to need to add in some compost or you're going to need to add in some fertilizer. Uh, Extension has publications on how much you would need of, of either one uh, but so once you've done some amendment to the soil then you're gonna need to make sure you come in there and, and plant it at the right time and so planting at the right time is you can do direct seeding even now if you wanted to uh, and you could keep doing that up into July uh, but if you want to do transplants anytime after Memorial Day or right around it those plants are safe for planting outside and so it doesn't matter if you're getting plant starts. If you wanted to get them at a box store, or one of the greenhouses, you can do that. Or if you're doing plant starts in our plant starts inside, you could even start doing them now because you're just you're going to be uh, planting them into your garden. If you see start them today in about four weeks or so, and uh, you'd still be able to produce. That's still pl- that's still plenty, of time. Yeah, plenty now, of time. Now,
0: what's your opinion on? You know, some people. You know, like let's let's say somebody just got their first little garden in a four by four or four by eight. know maybe six or eight foot deep box do you advocate cutting the sod out and planting directly or you know a lot of people will lay down cardboard or uh, fabric or whatever Uh, it seems to be about either way that i've learned but is there any way you think was is better
1: so so there's benefits and cons to to doing either way so if you wanted to dig into the soil you could but in a raised bed situation you're basically growing on top of whatever you got down there to begin with so uh, if somebody wanted to do like Hugo culture, and that's basically they're creating a mound or they're starting on the on the surface and they're mounting stuff up to grow in that that's absolutely fine so you don't actually have to, to tear up the soil unless uh, you're not going to be using something that's raising it up so if you've got boards on the side you're you basically can fill it with your growing media And that could be a mix of native soil and compost and old potting soil or new potting soil. You can do that and you don't have to dig into the ground. So then, yes, you could put down a little bit of weed barrier fabric or cardboard. Cardboard would work just fine. So your old Amazon boxes, et cetera, and lay that on top and then seed seed your plants into soil on top of that. And, uh, you know, if you're going to be planting plants in there, the shallow plants like lettuces, uh, radishes and things like that, they don't have deep roots three to four inches of soil will be fine but if you are want to be growing anything that's a root crop you want at least six inches but yeah. more like 10 inches
0: of soil yeah. would be best and and for someone first starting out to you know there's a lot of places to get soil and would you advocate that they do a mix or just get basically bagged garden soil uh, at, at the big box store or the greenhouse or whatever
1: so it it really depends so if you have a stockpile of soil that's already worked and accessible and you basically just have to you know you've dug it up and it's just really really available to scoop up and put in there then you can use that as your base uh, and you can create your own mix so a lot of times if you've got enough compost on hand uh, you know if you wanted to create a fertile soil that was three inches deep you could take one inch of compost and mix that into two or three inches of soil and you would have a pretty fertile soil to grow in without needing much fertilizer. You could, if you wanted to do that to six inches deep, you would need about two inches of compost to start, but that's just like a one-time thing to start. You wouldn't do that every year. Uh, so that would be one way you could use the native soil. Another would be is just use the native soil and then add fertilizer. And so that would be anywhere in the range of three to four cups of a, of a conventional fertilizer or a specific mix of organic fertilizer. And it kind of depends on what you're using um so you can do it that way if you've got a really small area and you're just starting out you've got containers or a very small raised bed you know like a two foot by two foot or a four foot by four foot it might be easiest for you to start out this year by using a commercial mixed potting soil and so then you could use like the sunshine mix or the pro mix or just go get your you know scott's garden mix or one of the others uh, there's miracle grow there's lots of different ones that we have access to on the peninsula so that might be easiest for you And then you don't have to worry about doing anything. But next year, you'll need to do something because, you know, the the nutrients that were in that soil, the minerals that the plants needed won't be available as they were because, you know, they got used up by the plants. Sure. And
0: and folks, I know a lot of you uh, uh, experienced gardeners know this, but when you're getting fertilizer, you need to be kind of careful what you're getting. For instance, uh, one year I made the mistake many years ago growing radishes. I had fantastic greenery. Well, I fertilize them with a really high nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen promotes leaf growth, and you need to have some uh, phosphorus and potassium in there to promote root, root growth. And as a reminder, uh, when you look on your bag of, of fertilizer, It'll have three numbers, and those numbers they'll be like 10 10 10, 8 32 8, whatever. Those numbers mean that's the percentage. A 10 10 10 bag is 10% nitrogen, 10% phosphorus, and 10% potassium. And what that means is if you have a hundred to make this easy, if you have a hundred pound bag of these, 10% by weight, so 10 pounds of that 100 pound bag is 10 pounds of nitrogen, 10 pounds of phosphorus. So, same way, 832. Uh, 16, the 32. There's 32 pounds of phosphorus in a hundred pound sack. So the best thing is to read your directions because some folks don't realize that over fertilization also is just as bad or can damage your plant as opposed to under fertilization.
1: Yeah, and that's that's actually really common. So if if you've been gardening for more than five years, a lot of times we do recommend you do uh, some soil testing especially if you've been applying all sorts of different fertilizers over the years, you you build up in nutrients. So you might have really high potassium or you might have really high nitrogen, depending on your circumstance. Uh, I've seen soils tests that come in where the nitrogen level might be a thousand parts per million. And, the the high rate that you need in the soil is like 75 parts per million yeah and so there are more than 10 times the amount of nitrogen and at that level you actually if you put plants into it they'll just burn up the roots will actually burn like like you're talking about so uh yeah make sure you're matching your fertilizer to what you're growing so if you're growing root crops and you just wanted to buy conventional fertilizer uh you can get away with using the eight thirty two sixteen because it has a little bit lower nitrogen However, if you're growing things that grow on top of the ground, like cabbages, you want to have big cabbages, you want to have really big lettuce and things like that, then you would go for something that's an even match of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, so like a 10-10-10 or a 20-20-20. And if you have the option to choose 20-20-20 or 10-10-10 and they cost the same per pound, get the 20-20-20 because you'll have to use half as much. That's a good you're point, getting, yeah. You're getting way more fertilizer per bag than if you go with the lower rate.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. And, you know, one of the other things that, uh, you know, when you're talking fertilizer and talking burning, uh, for you folks that have or have access to chicken manure, chicken manure is really hot, and it uh, it needs to compost for quite a while. Now, rabbit manure can go right in. Now, I'm not sure about goat manure, but uh, you got to be careful when you're composting these. For instance, uh, horse manure uh, typically has a lot of seeds in it, potential weed seeds, because they eat about everything. But if you're going to do your own compost, you need to get that compost pile up to 150, 60 degrees, and that kills those weed seeds. This is more for your experienced gardeners that that set a compost pile, and I do that every year. I I compost my stuff, and I've got it a little easier because I've got a tractor. I use a bucket to, to turn the pile, and it's just because you get out there, and you wind up with a, a yard or yard and a half of compost. Turning that with a fork is... That's a lot of work, but I can typically get my compost pile up to 150, 60 degrees and it works great. It works absolutely wonderful. Well, Casey, one of the other, uh, things that people do that I think they, and I think everybody does this at one time or another, and that is how often they should water their garden.
1: Yeah. So, um, it kind of depends on where you're at. So we just got back, um, on a, there was three or four of us with the state for the Department of Environmental Conservation to the vet's office. And an extension, we went to southeast Alaska. Now, they get a lot of rain. So down there, you don't have to water your your garden as much as you, as you might hear because in the summer, we actually get pretty dry until we get into July and August. And, of course, that's right around fair time when it starts to rain. You know, we start to get more rain. So... On average, in any garden, we need at least one to two inches of irrigation or rainfall to keep it going uh, through the season. During the hot year in 2020, you needed to be watering every other day just to keep those plants uh, moist because it was evaporating. We were getting temperatures above 80 commonly,
0: and your soil moisture
1: goes away really quickly in those situations. Sure.
0: Normally, that's typically, uh, they say, an inch. The, The rule of thumb was always an inch a week, but like you said hotter than blaze same way back in the midwest we watered every day it was amazing how how hot and how fast those plants will wilt now they usually unless you just really let them go too long they will typically bounce back and i think all of us have seen that tomato that's just oh man he's thirsty and he's wilting down and you water him and 35 minutes later he's poked up straight again and yeah
1: and, and it, ready to go yeah and one of the things you know so if you're worried that you're not watering enough. Um, One of the first things you'll see is a little bit of the wilting uh, that's happening with your plants. However, if you're seeing that, what's happening with the roots below ground is every root that's going down has little tiny root hairs on it that basically act to pull water from the soil, and you'll have death of some of those root hairs every time it wilts. And then every time that happens, if your plant wilts multiple times, it will never be as big as a plant that never had incurred that wilt at all so you're actually reducing your plant growth by letting it get to that stage so always make sure you've got soil moisture out there for your plants and the best way to check is by digging a little hand trowel up of it and feeling it in your hand if water is just oozing out of your hand when you're not even squeezing the soil that's too much water Uh, the, the amount of water you want is when you squeeze it some water will come out and it will feel kind of wet like a sponge that's already been wrung out. You don't want it soaping wet because you need air, the plants need air in the soil too, and so do the bacteria and stuff to, to keep it healthy. Uh, so yeah, don't get the feet of the plants too wet because they're they're not gonna get oxygen, it's gonna be too wet and they can start actually having root rot. But also don't let them get too dry. So if you stick your hand in there and it's all crumbly and there's, when you squeeze it, you can't get moisture out, it's too dry. Uh, but on average, if you're watering like you know, you didn't check anything. You were watering about an inch a week. That would probably be okay. But when it gets hotter, it's not going to be enough. And if you're getting rain, it's probably, it could be too much in could some be cases. Too much, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know uh, some years back, I did started doing a little research on how they, how the weather folks, uh, NOAA figures out rainfall. And it's, it's actually a, like an eight inch diameter funnel. And I bought one. The, the official ones are expensive, So I bought a 4-inch one, and it's amazing. It's got a tube down the center of it, and it's a funnel, and it literally fills this tube up. It's got to be at least a foot tall, and all the water that's in it is one inch. And then everything flows over, and then you pour that inch out, and then you fill it up again. That tells you what rainfall you've got. And that's what I've got mounted on a board in my uh, garden with the oscillating sprinkler. And when I need to water, I mean, I fire that thing up and it hits my rain gauge. And at an inch, I turn it off. And like you said, if it's, we haven't had it, if it's hot, if it's really hot, I might do that three days later again and, uh, and give them some water, you know, because that's, uh, that's one of the things, folks, that, yeah, and as Casey said, and this is one of the things I think that's confusing is you see a lot of different things with people, the way they start plants and the way they, the way they work their plants is. One of the things that plants need, they do need aeration through the, through the soil column. But you also don't want too big of air pockets because, and correct me if I'm wrong, the plants will do something that's called air pruning, and they make pots that do that, that once the, the, in a pot, once the root starts heading out wanting to go outside the pot, eh, no way it turns around or it dies because they don't want to be in strict Strictly just air. And what, what I've seen a lot of people do, and I do this in, when, with my starts, when I put my, my starting soil like sunshine, something like that in my, in my starter trays, I wet them down a little bit, and then I drop the tray a couple times to give just a little bit of compaction because I think some people, they put, they don't do that, and, and they have poor starts because there's too, much, there's too much air. There's not enough for the, for the little roots to grab onto is uh, one of my thoughts on that.
1: Well, and, um, you're exactly right. So if people are growing in hanging baskets and they'll get the ones with the coconut fiber and it's just got a wire frame, they're growing in that. Uh, yeah, those dry out really quickly. And so, uh, you have to water those almost every day when it starts to get warm in the summer, uh, that situation is basically the same. Cause every time when it, air pruning is just what I was talking about and those, when those root hairs get too dried out, they die. And, right. uh, and in those situations, whether it's a seed starting tray, if you're not watering enough or you're putting in a container that gets a lot of airflow around it, et cetera, uh, you know, you have to be really careful to make sure you're keeping it moist. So making sure, yeah, they're not growing in something that's too open to the environment and dries out too quickly. And then also making sure it's got some holes in it so it can drain. Uh, Because that's also one of the huge problems people get. They'll try and grow in a container and there'll be no holes in the bottom. Right. And and you'll get root rot and and the plant will will die. So I see that that a lot in cucumbers and things like that. People put them in pots they have around the house, but they they even sell some containers that have no holes in them. So you have to make holes yourself.
0: Right. I know I made that mistake, uh, I think, about two or three years ago. With uh, I got some seascape strawberries and I started them in their individual pots and they were doing great They were doing fantastic and I got tired of watering them And I set them in those waterproof trays and started watering from the bottom 80% of them died and they've got a drain and uh, I talked to Bobby Jackson who's a great gardener and she and you know Bobby well, you knucklehead, <laughs> you knucklehead, you watered them from the bottom. They've got to drain, you know. So I learned that lesson. You know, I was just trying to make my life easier. And it wound up screwing my crop up. You know, I didn't it didn't do it, you know. So we'll... we'll uh Casey, we got a, a. There's a listener named Abby who was saying her carrots were stubby last year, and she wanted help. And the only thing I can think, I'm going to bring up a couple, and then I'll let you talk about that. Is for one thing, Abby, it it might have been the variety that you planted. That's a possibility because there are carrots that uh, the Parisian is a little bitty short. It's almost like the size of a golf ball. Is that's all the bigger they get. So one of them is the variety. Another one of them is if. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Same way with a lot of root crops. If your soil is too compact, a lot of times the plant has to fight that soil. Like if it's high clay soil, uh, you know, they'll still grow. But if they've got to fight that, the more robust your soil is and the more loamy it is and and loose, they'll grow better. So, uh, But other than that, Casey, what do you think about stumpy carrots?
1: So... So, yeah, so obviously the first thing you'd want to look at is the variety to make sure you've got one. So, yeah, the Parisian carrots, those those are my favorite because they grow in almost the same shape as most radishes. Yeah. And they grow quicker for harvest. And then you cut the top off, cut the bottom off, throw it in a salad. You don't have to do all the cutting up and stuff because... That's a good point, know, yeah. Yeah, it's easier to use. But the other thing to look out for, like you're saying, is if there's something that restricts the root growth downward, that will... that can uh, be a problem and you'll be able to tell on a carrot. So if it, whether it's compacted soil or maybe it's just a shallow bed or container that you're using, they'll start to J J root, they will right. go to the bottom and then they will go sideways. Uh, so that's one situation you might run into. There isn't a lot of other situations that cause, uh, just stubby short carrots. Um, one thing that might happen is if you've got a lot of nitrogen in your soil on carrots, what they'll do is, have great big tops they'll be growing right. the tops like crazy just like those radishes yeah. i was telling you about. yeah yep and, and then also the roots of the plant will be growing differently they'll actually become a little bit more fibrous and they'll have a bunch more little side roots on them and stuff they'll look kind of funky so that could also potentially be a little bit situation that you're seeing with with root development that just kind of looks weird and not common for carrots um, but that's those would be the, the top normal three things that you usually see. The other thing that might happen is uh, potentially that you're running out of growing season and the temperatures might be changing a little bit. And if uh, the carrots start to slow down in their growth, then they, they might put a little bit more growth into areas of soil that are warmer than, than colder. So uh, you might see that as well. But, uh, and of course, carrots are biennials. So if you right. have carrots and you're growing them, uh, a lot of people will leave them in the ground and let them go a little bit longer, and carrots can actually kind of freeze a little bit, and you can have carrots that could survive into next year if you wanted. I have turnips that have done the same thing. I've not harvested all the turnips before in a in an area where I did cover crop and I threw turnips into the mix, gone back out there this, the next year, and we've got turnips the size of basketballs because they had all last year's growth and this the next year's growth to, to achieve a huge size, and so, uh, but
0: yeah. Now, when you're when you're doing that, do you uh, do you cover the beds like with straw or anything like that, or just just let the snow get them?
1: So, so if you're going to be planning to do it, it would be a good idea to uh, have those kind of be in a, like a little low tunnel or in a high tunnel uh, when they're growing, so that you can have warmer soils for longer, and then you don't have as much snow and stuff on them. But yes, you could cover them with straw to insulate the soil and keep it from freezing eventually the soil will freeze and it won't be easy to, to, to pull them out anyway. So uh, it, as soon as you start to get to the point in the season where you know the soil is going to freeze, a lot of people will pull them out at that time, stick them in a root cellar, or if they don't have a lot of them, they'll put them in the crisper in the bottom of their fridge so they have high humidity and cool temperatures uh, to make them last longer. Because, if you know, when your carrots go bad in the fridge, it's because most of the area in your fridge actually dries things out. And when your carrots become rubbery, it's because they're drying out. So when you buy your carrots as baby carrots in the store, they're really moist inside. That's because they want them to stay crisp and fresh. If they had them open to the environment, they're going to start becoming rubbery really quickly. And so that's why like the bundled carrots and things like that that you buy in the store. You need to check those before you buy them. Because if they're on the shelf for too long, they're going to be rubbery and they're not going to be as good.
0: Right. And, and you know what Casey was, Casey was talking about too, uh, with the carrot being biennial, there's uh there are several plants that are biennial onions. Uh, and what he means by that is uh, the, the growers for seed, they let that carrot grow and correct me if I'm wrong, Casey, but, but then the seed doesn't form till the next season. So that carrots in the ground and that's the food supply. Uh, and then next year it starts growing again and then it, produces carrots now most gardeners know what bolting is and you will still get some plants that normally are biennial they may due to certain conditions maybe drought or whatever uh, will bolt and produce seed not normal but for the most part that's what I mean I know uh, onion growers they the seed doesn't form till next year
1: yep yeah and so 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 anyone that if you're when you're buying carrot seeds in the store those are all from two-year-old plants right so the carrot farmers grow it first year they don't harvest it they leave it in the soil they come back the second year and then they collect the seed after they've flowered and 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 seeds have matured so is the
0: is the carrot underground still a, a worthy crop or is it used up so
1: so you can definitely still eat it that, there's no problem there and then uh anything like your beets and your turnips and stuff you could still eat them what you will find is that If they've been doing a lot of growth, like you've had a lot of nitrogen in the soil, et cetera, the the roots will be a little bit more fibrous and more woody uh, as you get later and later into that second year. Early in the second year of growth, uh, they're still going to be almost as good as they were the first year, but after they've gone to fruit, they've gone flower, and they're producing seeds, at that point then the plant is shifting where they're putting their sugars and everything like that. So yeah, they're going to be less sweet. They're going to be more woody. Uh, But if you're on a diet and you just want something in your salad, there you go. You've got an even lower calorie carrot to put (laughs) in your salad.
0: And you just said a word that I was going to ask you the question about too. Uh, Casey, do you care to explain to folks why the, the theory, and I don't think it's a theory, it's a fact of why certain plants taste better after a cold frost in the fall.
1: Sure. So what you have happening, uh, and this happens for a lot of plants, is if you've got a frost or cold temperatures, it causes the plants to shift where they're moving nutrients. And so when that happens, it can change the the, uh, complex carbohydrates and other type of carbohydrates that are in the plant from starches to sugars or sugars to starches, and it depends on different plants. But yes, you'll see that where where some plants, after they've incurred cold temperature, can become sweeter. Uh, What you'll see here in Alaska is carrots that are very sweet, and that's partly to do to the long growing days that we have, but the cooler temperatures. So if you go and grow carrots in Mexico, those carrots grow really rapidly, and the those carrots are going to be more woody, they're going to be less tasty, but you grow them in cooler temperatures, a, a longer growing season under cooler weather, you're going to have nice sweet carrots like we have here in Alaska.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, that works with Brussels sprouts. I know I let my leeks go through a couple of good frosts, and boy, those leeks come out great like that. They just come out wonderful. Well, folks, uh, we're here on Grown Greener Green or Kenai Special Edition with uh, Casey Matney from the Extension Center. Uh, give us a call at 513-1996 or 283-8433 and uh, do what you can to support Public Radio, KDLL. It's why we get to do shows like Grown or Green or Kenai. And I want to remind folks that uh, for $250 or more, Uh, membership driver donation today you will be in a drawing at the end of this show for one super sack of fritz miller's compost that's 30 cubic feet that's three cubic feet over a cubic yard just a little over a cubic yard and for what we were talking about a little bit earlier if you want to buy some compost from fritz fritz also sells his compost in a one cubic foot grow bag you know and most folks know what those are though they're kind of like that fabric real heavy felt type bag and you can buy those and you can plant directly into that. I did that a couple years from Fritz and uh, I tell you it, uh, boy I had tomatoes did just great in his in his compost just did wonderful wonderful. Well you know Fritz or I'm sorry Fritz Casey uh, do you, do you care to, to let folks know of the resource and I mention this every show. The resources they can get from the extension center sure. uh, on help to make them a better gardener.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you're looking for publications or you want direct help from me or anyone else in extension, the first place to go would be if you type in on the internet browser and just type in Kenai Extension, uh, it'll pull up our Kenai Peninsula Extension office, which is located in Soldotna on K Beach Road, right next to Fishing Game. And uh, what we have is. Publications on soil, growing different types of crops, starting gardens, growing commercially, whether you want to do potatoes or when you want to actually go into doing uh, full-sell direct marketing, uh, you know, doing farmers markets, et cetera. We have lots of different publications. Uh, and we also work with lots of different partners. So, uh, one of the things that I do is I work with Western Sayre. And Western Sayre is the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Extension and it's funded through the USDA, and uh, there's publications and books on everything from market gardening to uh, studies on how to uh, use cover crops, etc. We've we've got lots of different resources, and one of the things we do that's really helpful this time of year is we do soil test interpretation. Uh, I've been getting tons of those. I did, uh, I think, seven, I did a soil test interpretations yesterday for seven different people but it ended up being about 30 different soil samples from that I got test reports on that I was helping them with and what I'll do is like we're doing now talking about different things I'll create a little video that goes along with uh, an interpretation PDF file that they can look at to tell them how much fertilizer to use what they've got in their soil if they've got too much salt etc and so I walk people through that and so that's just one of the resources that we've got available and again just to find that type in Kenai extension uh, you pull up there, you'll see my name. If you want to call me send me an email or look at some of the resources for, you know, how much fertilizer do I need to add, et cetera.
0: Sure. That's great. And is there uh, is there any uh, particular, well, when you say you've been doing these uh, interpretations of all these soil samples, is there any particular factor that's been equal with all these samples or are they across the board? So
1: if you've got soil and it's going to be a new garden or a new farm, most of the soils that you're going to run across are going to need almost everything for plant growth. So you're, they're going to need nitrogen. They're going to need phosphorus, potassium. They're going to need magnesium. They're going to need sulfur. They're going to need boron. They're going to need all of these different things. And the major factor is is that the pH of our soil is low. So we have an acidic soil. That's because we've got young soils. We've got relatively high organics in peaty areas. areas. But most of our soils are glacial or volcanic in origin, and they just tend to be acidic, especially in areas where we got more rainfall.
0: Good for so, our potatoes. Yeah. So <laughs> so it
1: can it can be fine. Actually, potatoes do best at 6.5 pH, right. and most of our plants do. Uh, but for some types of potato scab, and we have we know we have uh, at least four different ones in Alaska now. Uh, but some of them do better at high pH. Some of them do better at low pH. The scab. So. But you want your plants to be about 6.5 pH, and a lot of our soils, native soils, are going to be anywhere from 4.5 to under 6. So that's going to need a little bit of lime. So that's one of the other factors you have to consider. But across the board, if you haven't worked the soil, it's going to need lime. It's going to need fertilizer of some kind, whether it's organic or conventional. And if if you've got a garden and you've been gardening a long time, you're still going to need a little bit of phosphorus. You're still going to need a little bit of nitrogen. If you're not oversupplying, because every year your plants are using nitrogen and even if you didn't garden the bacteria in the soil are going to use that nitrogen it's
0: and going that, to go away yeah so. and that was going to be my next question for folks that do need to fertilize is and i know a lot of it depends on what you're growing uh, and, and your situation but how often do you recommend somebody fertilize
1: so every year would be the way to, to fertilize because the year previously you're only trying to put in fertilizer that the plants need right because if you if you're putting in too much nitrogen it can burn your plants but if it doesn't burn your plants you're just kind of wasting the nitrogen because by the time that next spring rolls around and it, it's a it's an outdoor garden or a high tunnel garden the bacteria in your soil are going to use that, that those nutrients up so only put in what you need and so on an average garden that hasn't had any fertilizer before They're probably going to need almost three pounds of of blood meal to get nitrogen, three pounds of bone meal to get their phosphorus. And then they're going to need something like a sulpomag or a langbonite at about two pounds or so per hundred square feet to get their potassium, their sulfur and magnesium. Uh, And those are like the main nutrients that your plants are going to need. Uh, If you come back to a garden that's been garden for 10 years and they've been doing lots of fertilizer in there, we do look at your soil test and we're going to probably use me using less of each uh, on average just because there's going to be nutrients holding over depending because if you grow radishes in there versus growing cabbage those radishes are not nearly going to use as much of the nutrients and fertilizer as a cabbage would cabbage might completely use up the nitrogen that's in the soil whereas growing root crops maybe not so
0: yeah and and when i and and I also meant uh, once the the folks once your garden is going, you know you see a lot of these fertilizers, you know, the all sorts of varieties. and some of them will recommend they said, you know fertilize and and most of these plants are just like a tree. You don't want to plant, fertilize right next to the roots. they've got a drip line typically where the roots go out to, how often for that, you know, like some of them will say a uh, slight sprinkle every two weeks, a light sprinkle once a month, you know, and it's, it's hard to decide. And is there, is there any way a gardener can tell if they have over or under fertilized once their plants are more robust, you know, with like yellowing leaves or, sure. or whatever?
1: Sure. So uh, ideally what you would do is you'd measure out all of your fertilizer and apply it to the right area early in the spring and work it, equally into the soil then plant your plants into it and then if you're going to use a weed barrier or mulch cover it up so and then water it and then that's that's your that's your regimen for the year if you've done a good job of measuring that out uh, there won't be too much there won't be too little if you run in the situation where you're coming back in and you're wanting to add more fertilizer you would do that very lightly you would kind of either be uh, using a liquid fertilizer or a compost tea or side dressing to the edge of your plants Uh, Just to the side, probably at least two inches from the base of the plant out, probably not more than eight inches away in total away from the plant. So a little ways out out from the plant base because if fertilizer, whether it's a tree or a plant, if the fertilizer sits right on the the plant, it can actually cause burn. It can, Mm. can cause problems for the plant. So move it out just a little bit from the plant, but not too far away. So you could do that. And if you're looking at your plants and noticing that your plants overall are just showing a yellow, light yellow color and you're growing things like lettuce or cabbage and things that grow really rapidly, uh, it's probably gonna be that you're running out a little bit of nitrogen. And so you could come back in and use something like a liquid fertilizer of nitrogen. So like fish emulsion, you can get the Alaska liquid fertilizer or you could make a compost tea, et cetera, to water back in and that will have nitrogen there to help your plants. Uh, if you're seeing the edges of your leaves burn, and I see this a lot more often in high tunnels where people have maybe given a little too much fertilizer, have been, done too much fertigation or liquid fertilizer, and maybe they've got an outer ring of their leaves that are turning yellow and crispy brown, and, and that's usually some type of nitrogen or salt burn. The, the only real way to fix that a little bit is to over-irrigate, uh, to wash and leach out some of that nitrogen away from the plants that's one way to kind of push it out. And if you do that two or three times, uh, you know, thoroughly drenching the soil, but has to drain away. If you're in a a position where the soil doesn't drain well, that's not going to work for you. So, um, um, so hopefully you're not in that situation because then the water can't go away and and you you, can't over irrigate to wash out salts or anything. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: and you know, one of the things people don't realize that well water and a lot of our water, uh, there's salt in there, you know, it's just a natural, uh, natural in the environment and, and, and uh, i know on the east coast and i think there's other places where some of the underground off- aquifers are just high percentage salt i mean they're high enough percentage salt i know out there's a farm out in california that they pump that groundwater it's so salty and evaporate and sell the salt you know so uh that's what's always been on is it's fresh water but there's still just those minute minute uh mineral in that groundwater
1: Yeah. And so for most of our areas that we have out here, we've got good recharge and usually you don't run into that situation here. Up here, Yep. Up here is the, our groundwater is pretty good. And, uh, but you will run into situations, uh, where like, if you're talking about the built up of salt. So like if you've got spruce trees or other trees and you've burned, burned those trees up in a either way, it was firewood or anything else. And you had campfires, et cetera. And you, you, you know people tell you oh use the ash from that in your garden that'll raise the pH It'll be good for your plants. Well I would only recommend probably only ever doing that once on an area because it has salts because you what you're doing is you're Taking the entire tree that was standing there and reducing it to a little bit of ashes and it concentrates Anything that was in it and one of the things it concentrates is sodium and so so you have to use it very sparingly if you're gonna do that once and not very much of it because You can, uh, a lot of times what you'll find people do is they'll take old uh, wood ash, put it on the sides of their driveway or by their sidewalks to kill plants. It actually will stop plants from growing because it's high pH, high salts, and that's why you're not having plants grow there.
0: Is there any difference with birch trees or aspen trees?
1: Not really. There's going to be sodium in all of those. Yeah,
0: because, you know, back in the Midwest we used to do, uh, I used every year I used to put my wood stove ash, but it was all oak and hickory. I would spread it around my garden every year and it, seemed to really help my garden out you yeah. know that worked well well one of the things uh casey one of the folks on the on the garden one of the garden sites was saying and i don't know if you've ever tried this but you know uh, we were talking about those pesky moose and they're they're you know no matter how long you see them they're always fun to see in the yard and all that but boy you sure hate to see them nipping your plants your flowers your vegetables and everything well this one lady had a picture of every one of her tulips they went along and nip 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 they'll they'll bite those off and I recommended that she leave the greenery there because that'll still help strengthen the bulb for next year. And, uh, but, but that's all that's going to happen this year. It's, they're not going to grow anymore. But anyway, what I've tried before is planting a bunch of jonquils, daffodils, and even, even some of the other alliums, uh, garlic and chives, in with my flowers. And, you know, a young moose will bite a daffodil but they don't like them and they learn. And I've had years where I didn't have, and we got moose all over the place, where I didn't have a single tulip lost. And I've had other years where you do lose them, you know, so uh, any experience with that or have you tried that one?
1: So, so yeah, so the, the ultimate way to protect your plants is some type of exclusion, some type of barrier to keep the animals away. Uh, if you can't do that and you know it's always gonna be open, yeah, you can mix in some other plants to help protect them. Uh, what what you can do is if you've got uh plants that are taller that that will grow on the outside of the plants you want to protect that you know the moose don't like you can plant those there as a barrier yet yeah, and you can uh basically hide your tulips and the other things that you don't want to be eaten <laughs> yeah. among other vegetation that also isn't going to be that attractive to moose um, for the most part moose uh, right now you 're going to see them they 're going to be eating the green grass that are yeah. growing because it 's high in protein and nitrogen that they they need to grow because they 've been eating twigs all winter long
0: and, and they 've had a tough year yeah, and they 've had a long
1: winter. winter, long winter for yeah. them, so that 's the nutrients they 're going for, but pretty soon they 're going to shift from eating that little bit of grass to eating the nice leafy plants that are out there, so it 's going to be different types of. There's gonna be fireweed out there. There's gonna be leaves on the willows. There's gonna be all sorts of things for them to wanna to eat. And they're not gonna be as attracted to your garden. And the other thing you can do is not have your plants stick out like a sore thumb. So if you have a huge lawn and you have a little tiny island that you plant in it, boy, the novelty of them seeing that, walking across the big open space and seeing all those little things to eat, oh, it's gonna be targeted. So find ways to try and minimize uh, animal access to those points.
0: Yeah, and uh, one one other thing. We're getting close to the end of the show. Uh, I want to remind folks to uh, give us a call at 513 1996 8433 to donate online or go donate online at kdll.org. And uh, supporting KDLL is one of the th- reasons we get to bring Growing a Greener Kenai to you. And, uh, Casey, one of the things, too, I, I want folks to know is what they can do if they've got a pest in their garden and they don't know what it is. I've done this before with you guys, uh, who to send it to, maybe with a picture of it, and boy, those guys went over fell over backwards to help me identify that pest yep
1: yeah you can any any extension office uh you can submit samples to uh, if you're here, just you can look me up on the Kenai extension and then send it directly to me. We also have an Alaska pest reporter, right, so if you just type in as your your uh Uh, search browser alaska pest reporter it will pull up our extension website and you can send stuff from your phone from there Uh, and also we actually have an invasive slug website now too where if you see slugs and you're wondering if this is a bad slug and the main one that's bad for us is the black european slug so if you see a black slug definitely report it to us if you can through our website
0: yeah and uh... Have have you uh, Casey? Have you had any experience? Uh, you know, a lot of people swear by that uh, product called called uh, Plant Skid. It apparently stinks pretty good. I've never used it; never have felt the need to. But have you had any experience with that?
1: It, so, mostly to prevent uh, damage to your plants. If you've got anything out there, like so, some people will swear that you can put different scents, like around your garden, to keep moose away, et cetera. Or you can put other Sense around your garden to keep so, certain types of pests away. Uh, that doesn't work overall very well. It might create a little bit of, of a situation where they might not be as prevalent to to want to access those things. But overall, barriers are the only things, yeah. or um, a, a toxic bait for like slugs. So like the only organic talk to- or bait that you can use for slugs is Sluggo. Uh, the rest have something else in them that that makes them not organic. Uh, So yes, there are things out there, but for the most part, it's either an actual bait that works as a trap for, 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 for bug pests and things like that, or traps them, or you're looking at using some type of barrier, like a row cover for your plants or fencing to keep out the, the, the pests from your
0: garden. And, and I want to be sure folks know too, when you're using a row cover, there's a there's some stuff called remay and it's a white fabric and you can almost see through it. It's it's like, but if you're doing that, uh, as opposed to covering, making a small row, like with a little high tunnel with plastic, the row cover, the, the remay stuff, it'll allow rain to go through and your plants still get watered or when you've run in a sprinkler, however you're doing, if you're not dripped, irrigating but the plastic folks don't forget you've got a uh, don't let it get too hot in there and you've got to water when you've got that plastic down now this time of year we're getting into the time where you really don't need that too much anymore it's gonna still for a little while maybe but yeah don't let it get too hot in there because sun, sun out today it'll be hot under your little on your little deal so uh anyway uh casey thanks so much for coming on the show with me i really appreciate uh, you know I could probably think up, I looked up a few, I could think up a thousand questions. I'm sure a lot of our gardeners could. And this guy knows all the answers, folks. If you got any help, uh, just go to the Extension Center. And we all know where that is it's on K Beach by the Fish and Game Office uh right down there so casey thanks again for coming
1: well thanks for having me larry i think i'm going to get out here and enjoy the sunshine and
0: oh yeah work
1: on my compost pile
0: yep that's what i'm going to do when i get home later on so all right well thank you very much casey uh this is listener supported public radio for the central kenai peninsula kdll 91.9 fm kenai soldatna thanks for listening folks